You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Well, it's great to be together. Um, if we've not met before, I'm sorry about that, but my name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here. And I want to welcome you if you're a guest and say thanks for joining us today. It's wonderful to have you with us. We are brand new in a uh, series working through the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, which is a, an interesting book, a challenging book, a very real book. It doesn't read like a religious book uh, in, in, for the most part. A very real book, and uh, we started it last week. So I don't often say you, you should go back and listen to last week, but I am going to say it this week, because last week uh, we sort of laid out uh, how to interpret the book. So we laid out like four categories to understand. I'm going to reference a couple of them here in a second. But uh, how to understand this book that is so often perplexing, and uh, we'll get into some perplexing words today as we read. So just, uh, just a recommendation. If you go back and listen last week, you'll be set. It'll help you for the rest of the book. Also, we have a book out there uh, in the Resource Center called Living Life Backward, uh, which is a great, great resource if you'd like to study along with us. Well, last week we said the book of Ecclesiastes is, doesn't read like a letter, one of Paul's letters. It doesn't read like a story, a Bible story, a gospel, the stories of Jesus, because it's part of something called wisdom literature, a genre called wisdom literature in the Old Testament. Uh, the author simply in verse 1 of Ecclesiastes identifies himself as the preacher. I should also mention maybe you brought back your little uh, journal Bibles, uh, journal, not Bibles, but books of Ecclesiastes. We have more of those out on the back tables <clears throat> if you didn't get one um, to take notes in or whatever. Uh, but you can look there. He, he identifies himself as the preacher. So the word is koaleth, is the Hebrew word, and I only mention that because you'll often, if you read on Ecclesiastes, you'll hear a reference to a guy named koaleth. Uh, well, that's, that's what's translated in English as the preacher, and it's, uh, it's translated in Greek roughly as Ecclesiastes. So uh, it's a guy. This is an author. Uh, Ecclesiastes is not just a religious book. It's the name of the author. The preacher, the gatherer is what it means. Um, and it, it, we assume it's Solomon. Um, that's been the historical idea because his uh, life story lines up with Solomon and he refers to himself as the son of David, king in Jerusalem in verse 1. The message of the book is really encapsulated in verse 2, which is vanity of vanities. Says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So we talked about last week that this word vanity is translated, we looked at a number of passages, uh, it's translated breath elsewhere in, in the Bible. It means breath, it's, that's what it actually means. Now, it's a metaphor, so you, it has to be interpreted. Uh, and if we look at how it's used elsewhere, and if we look at how it's used in the whole book of Ecclesiastes, we see that it, the idea of breath is something that is temporary. It's like if you breathe out on a freezing day, uh, you see your breath in a cloud for just a moment, and it's gone. And that's what he says. That's what life is. It's like a, a mist. It's like a fog. It's something that's here momentarily. And it's not only momentary, but if you try to grab that cloud, well, good luck. Uh, you can't rope it in. You can't reel it in. You can't get your arms around it. So the, the metaphor of breath not only means temporary, but it also means elusive, that you sort of can't grab onto it. 
And then in verse 3, he begins to talk about, we talked about this all last week, that, um, and we'll look at this in some detail today, that there's no gain in life. Verse 3, what does man gain by all his toil, which he toils under the sun? And so we saw that gain, he, he, the book is talking a lot about the idea that you don't seek to pursue the things of life to find your meaning in life. Uh, because there's ultimately no gain in what you were able to do or accomplish because ultimately you're going to die. And that's where the book ends. It talks about death and judgment. And so the big idea of Ecclesiastes is that, that we really don't begin to live until we properly consider our death. And as we think about death, that informs how we are to live today. And we're going to see that throughout the book. Today, we're going to cover verses 4 through 11, though I'll read the first three. We're going to cover 4 through 11, which is a poem. And uh, it's, uh, you, you'll see that in a minute. We'll break it down and analyze it a little bit. So here we go. We're going to read verses 1 through 11, but today's text will be primarily verses 4 through 11. Let's listen to God's word. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It is already, it has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be remembrance of, latter, of later things yet to be among those who come after. Well, the book's a bit depressing at points, if you may have picked it up there. Uh, and it's really healthy because you will, there will be times reading this book, you'll be discouraged. But it's healthy because it's speaking to us reality so that we understand how the world works and we understand how we can live. Because there's a lot about joy in the book, how we can really live with joy. Now, why do we say this is a poem? It reads, it could be prose, it could be poet, poetry. And this is like one moment in all the sermons that, uh, that English teachers are, you're going to love this next moment, unless I botch it, which is very possible. But uh, it's because it's structured with parallelism, and through the parallelism, we understand the meaning of the poem. So here's a structure of the poem. Uh, can you, I hope you can read that. So we see in verse 4, generations come and go, but the earth remains forever. Now, if you look at the bottom, A prime, A and A prime mirror each other. They're both parallel. So verse 11 says, there is no remembrance of the past. Do you see how those go together? Generations come and go, there's no remembrance of the people that come and go. So those kind of form a parallel structure. The second uh, 
set of verses is verses 5 through 6, letter B. The unchanging repetition of nature. You read that. The sun rises, the sun sets, the winds blow around the earth. So there is this unchanging, ongoing repetition. If you look at B prime at the bottom, there is nothing new under the sun. So he even uses the sun there again. So he's saying that, look, the, the, the winds blow, the sun rises, the sun sets. It's this cyclical, repetitive nature of life, and there's nothing new. So those two really go together. And then in a, in a poem that's written this way, the focus of the poem is then found in the center. So it builds to a center or goes down to a center and then builds out. So C is verses 7 and 8. As the sea is never full, the eye and the ear are never satisfied. Everything is wearisome. So this is kind of how this section could be outlined um, and, uh, in, a, in a parallel fashion. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take A, A prime, and that's going to be a point B, and B prime, and that's a point I'll take C. So we'll work not verse by verse uh, from front to back or beginning to end, but we'll sort of take the ideas that parallel one another and develop them out. So you could, you, if you don't mind, you can leave this up for a bit, uh, Dustin. Thank you. Uh, so really, the, uh, we'll begin with verse 4 and verse 11, the beginning and the end. And, and really the point there is people come and go. People come and go, but verse 11, they're forgotten. The earth remains the same. People come and go, and they're forgotten, and the earth remains the same. Ecclesiastes is brutally honest. He says, here's what he's saying. You may work and you may accomplish great things, but think about what is really the value if who you are and what you've done are all forgotten in time. Verse 4, a generation goes, a generation comes. Verse 11, there's no remembrance of former things or of former people, what they accomplished. So, so what, what is the purpose if everything's going to be forgotten? And, and what, what Ecclesiastes is doing here is he's exposing our hearts for this longing that we all have for permanence, for permanence, for remembrance. That's what he's talking about. And he's saying, though we long for permanence and remembrance, the reality is there's no gain. Remember verse 3? Kind of the poem is all answering verse 3, the question, what does man gain by all his toil at which he toils under the sun? The implied answer is nothing, and now he's proving it in this poem. So there's nothing really to be gained if at the end you're forgotten and you, uh, there's no remembrance of you, and what you do is not permanent. Only the earth remains. So he's contrasting Nature with humanity. This is life under the sun. Now, he isn't saying this is reality for the unbeliever. Uh, this is all of our experience. A generation comes and goes, and so will we. Our generation will go as well. We need to be reminded of this. This is so healthy, depressing perhaps, but so healthy because we need to be reminded that this is how the world Works. This is how life works. And if we understand this, we then be can become to live, uh, begin to live wisely uh, because what Ecclesiastes is doing here is he's, he's attempting to, to, to address us so that we don't root our hopes in what we achieve, what we accomplish, how we'll be remembered. He's wanting to take that basic desire and, and in essence say, don't, don't root your hopes there. Because the reality is people come and go, and so will 
you. You are in a world in which you will soon die. So he's jolting us into reality. These sharp words, and they are sharp words, they they are a kindness if we will listen to them. Because the book is going to make the point that only when we consider our death can we really start to live. As long as we're living in make-believe land, uh, we won't be living the way the Lord wants us to. But if we realize what he's talking about, people come and go, I'm no different, and the past things aren't remembered, is what he says in verse 11. There'll be no remembrance, even among those who come after. So there's no remembrance of what we do. Verse 11 says those who come after us, there'll be no remembrance of what they do as well. The reason I say these are hard words is because none of us want to believe that life is like a breath, like a vapor, like a mist. We want permanence, and we live like we have permanence, and what we're doing has permanence. We live that way. We don't want to hear this kind of thing. And the reality is that God will expose this longing in our hearts in various ways. God exposes us. He loves us. And he's exposing it in the word as we look today, but he'll also expose it in our experience. A a pastor and author named Sean O'Donnell wrote a commentary on Ecclesiastes, and he he shares a story that I want to tell you uh, because he says the desire for permanence was so exposed, the desire for remembrance was so exposed in his own life when he returned to high school, when he visited his old high school. This is what he says. A few years ago, I went back to my high school to play in an alumni basketball game. I was the star back in the day. Yet when I returned to play in this game, a mere 15 years after graduation, almost nobody recognized my face or my name. The alumni team I was on, which had players mostly 10 years older or 10 years younger than I, they didn't know me. I was so frustrated that I wanted to pull out the record book and point to my name and say, hey, that's me. But then I looked at the record book and saw that my name had been relegated to the bottom of a few long lists. Someone had broken every glorious record that I had once held. How tragic. Listen, I had worked so hard back then only to be forgotten now. What a waste. What a vanity. My fame was as short and embarrassing as an air ball. (laughs) To add irony to this tragedy. (laughs) He's calling it a tragedy. He's tongue-in-cheek. To add irony to this tragedy... My high school was closed and then leveled shortly after the alumni game. So not only are all my records gone, the entire school is now gone and no longer remains. O'Donnell experienced the pain of the preacher's words, verse 11. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to come among those who come after. No remembrance. He's still living, and he's already completely forgotten, and his school is destroyed. This is, this is life, and it's just good for us to know this. Psalm 90, verse 10, 
says the years of our life are 70 or by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Life is moving fast. You see, Ecclesiastes is a meditation on, on, in part on the idolatries of this desire for permanence, this desire for remembrance, this desire for achievement that, that, that puts our name uh, in lights to be remembered and cherished for generations and generations. The second idea uh, we see is going back to verses 5 through 6 and verses 9 through 10. So the unchanging repetition of nature, remember we talked about the sun uh, in verses 5 and 6, and the wind. And then, uh, be primed, there is nothing new under the sun. So in this section, he's saying that nature is repetitive and unchanging, and so is human existence. That's what it means by nothing new under the sun. Nature, sun, wind, they are repetitive and unchanging and so are you. He's addressing this idea of the longing for something that is earth-shattering and new that will break us out of the cycles in which we live. He's trying to show us, again, that there's no gain. And so his point here is, in this section of the poem, his point is, why should we expect gain when there's no gain in nature? Get his point, verse 5. The sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north and around goes the wind on its circuits, the wind returns. So he's saying every day the sun rises and the sun sets. It's the same thing every day. And he says the winds do the same. They blow south uh, and then they circle around the globe and they blow north and then they blow south again. The winds just blow in this cyclical rhythm of life. And, and so he's saying that's really how our lives work as well. There are repetitive cycles in our lives. Now, here's the thing. We all long for something new. We don't want a repetitive cycle. So, some people do. There are some folks who really like, just give me routine. and that's, So that does appeal to some folks. But many people are, you know, I've got to break free, like a Carnival Cruise Line commercial. I've got to break free, um, and I, I just cannot be in the routine. And that's why you go on the cruise to begin with, right? I got to break. I got to live a life that I don't really live because this will be the life for me. And there's nothing wrong going on a cruise. That's not the point I'm making. But you get the idea. I'm trying to escape and break free from something. Uh, the monotony and the routines of my regular life. We want something to interrupt the repetition. Um, isn't there something that is really new? Isn't there something that will significantly change our lives? Isn't there a breakthrough in the world that will change everything? And Ecclesiastes says, uh, not really. No, not really. There's nothing new, verse 11 under, I'm sorry, verse 10, there's uh, verse 9, there is nothing new under the sun. That may be the best known line from the entire book. Uh, there's nothing new under the sun. Now, he's not saying that there have been no discoveries in human history. He's not saying there's been no advancements 
at all. Obviously, there have been. But it's helpful to understand how wisdom literature works, at least Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. They make observations about the general realities of life. That's what Proverbs does as well. Um, One real key to understanding Proverbs is it's not promises. The Proverbs are not making promises. They're making general observations about life. So the Proverbs say, hey, sloth leads to poverty, generally speaking. Um, Adultery leads to destruction, all things being equal. That's generally what happens. And Ecclesiastes is saying, generally, there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new that's really happening uh, that is of a categorically different that's categorically different in nature than what's gone on before. So everything that happens new now probably has, at its core, um, it has something in history that's a foundation for it or is similar to it. This is how David Gibson in his book, uh, uh, Living Life Backward, says it. He says, a new government is still a government, and we're all familiar with those. A revolution heralds a new era, and we've seen it all before. A new baby is still a baby, and the world has been full of them. Even landing on the moon is still a form, in form, in nature, he's saying, of adventure and exploration that has been with us since humans have walked the earth. Indeed, space travel is a good example of precisely the preacher's point. He doesn't mean that no new things are ever invented in the world, for clearly that's not true. He means there is nothing new we can ever discover to break the cycle and so satisfy us. When we conquer our solar system, humanity will then try to conquer the galaxy beyond it. We never have our fill. And that basic human impulse that led us to space in the first place has been already in the ages before us. Quote, verse 10. There is nothing new about humanity in the unfolding of all our progress. The, 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 the nothing new under the sun is really saying nothing's going to break out of the cycle of nature or human, human existence. Nothing's going to break out of the cycle that's going to, everybody's going to one day say, now we're ultimately fulfilled, ultimately happy, ultimately we have arrived. Even something as amazing as space travel, it's, it's, an, it's a desire for adventure and something new that has always been with us, but will, will never ultimately satisfy. In a world filled with repetition, we long for novelty. We long for novelty. As, it's, not, it's not wrong to want something new. But we long for novelty because ultimately we're, we are in our souls bored with the cycle and the repetition. I think this shows up in really small ways. So today's the Super Bowl, right? And uh, biggest game, oh, if you live anywhere else outside the U.S., obviously the World Cup is the biggest. But if you're a myopic American, then this is the biggest sporting event uh, in the universe. So... Uh, as far as we've discovered, right? There may be something new. Just kidding. Uh, so th- this is it. So it's not just enough to watch the game. We, we, there has to be something more. There's not enough to watch the game. So we bet on the game. Not we. I'm not saying I'm included in that group. But we, we bet on the game. 
So today, this would be known bets. Imagine how many unknown bets there are. We're at places where it's illegal to bet online or something. But there will be $16 billion bet on the game. And that adds some excitement if you can pick the team uh, that wins and wins some money. But it's not just enough to bet on the game. I was reading about all the proposition bets on the game. Do you know what a prop bet? A prop bet is you're not betting on who wins the game. You're betting on some other aspect of the day's events. And the things you can bet for are unbelievable. I didn't know all these. I knew a few, but I didn't know all these. So you can bet is the, hedge, is the coin toss heads or tails. 50-50 odds on that one, by the way. <laughs> you can bet on the coin toss. You can bet the over-under of the length of the national anthem. It's, it's Chris Stapleton. He sings kind of slow, y'all. Uh, so the over-under is 120 seconds. You can bet whether it's going to be old, more or less than 120 seconds. You can bet all kinds of things about the game, like what's the over-under of uh, completions that each of the quarterbacks will have, uh, what's the over-under of how many yards both quarterbacks can run, so uh, of uh, how many yards they'll gain. So there's all that kind of stuff. Uh, weird game stuff. You can bet on whether one of the extra points or field goals, the ball will hit the upright, okay? Wow, you, man. You, you can bet on the color of the Gatorade that will be poured over the coach <laughs> that wins the game. The odds-on leader at this point is like the yellow, yellow-greenish Gatorade color, uh, which I, that's what I bet, but... Um, you can bet on Rihanna's first song at halftime. You can bet on the color of Rihanna's hair in the halftime show. <laughs> now, no disrespect to Rihanna. I'm sure she's a wonderful person. But if your life is so drab that you are wagering large amounts of money on the color of a singer's hair in the halftime show, you are looking for novelty, my friend. We long for not something new. And we think by, by something new we'll have life. We think by gaining, that's verse 3, gain. We think by gaining something new, that's where life will be found. A new job, that will be the kicker for me. Because if I had a new job, I will never feel like I'm in a cycle, a repetitive. There'll be none of that ever again in this new job. You're kidding yourself. That's what you thought about this job when you took it. If I'd had a new house, if I had a new spouse, life would be different. If I had a new adventure, a new experience, and so we spend so much of our lives trying to rearrange the furniture of our lives, finding a thrill, trying to feel alive and break out of the repetitiveness of our lives like the sun, like the wind, which is always doing the same. But time after time, the poem tells us, we find that life isn't found in what's new, or otherwise we wouldn't be looking for something new. What is new isn't actually all that new to begin with, Ecclesiastes tell us, and it will soon be old and it will be forgotten. That's life under the sun. Ecclesiastes tells us. That's the world we live in. So when you look at the sun and when you feel the wind on your face, realize you won't escape the confines of repetition at some level in life. That life is not found in something new and breaking out of the routine. 
And when you realize your limitations as a creature and the world you live in, then you can begin to really start living. Now, that's going to come through the book. You're not going to get all that today, but that's going to come in the book. Here's the final section, and if we could see the chart again, this would be the center. This is C, verses 7 and 8. So this is kind of the center of the poem. As the sea is never full, the eye and the ear are never satisfied. Everything is wearisome. So in this section, he says, the streams never fill the sea, and we are never satisfied in our wearisome lives. We long for satisfaction. The streams, verse, um, verse 7, all streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. And then it makes the comparison to us. Man cannot utter, eye is not satisfied with seeing, ear is not filled with hearing. Okay, here's the point. The Mississippi River runs into the Gulf of Mexico, but the Gulf of Mexico doesn't overflow from the river flowing in to the sea. So rivers flow, but the sea doesn't overflow. What's he saying? That appears to be movement, and effort with no gain. That, that appears to be no surplus. Movement, effort, and no surplus. The constant motion of the streams uh, produce no lasting results. And he's saying, that's us. That's the point. Because he says, same with humans. It's, it's weary. What are we wearying? What do we gain by all our toil? Streams flow endlessly. The sea is never full. And so the eye is never satisfied and the ear is not filled. This is life under the sun. So you, just as that constant motion continues with apparently no gain, so you will never see something that will bring you in this life ultimate fulfillment. You will never hear something that will bring you ultimate fulfillment. That is life. He wants us to have this stark reality. That is life uh, under the sun. It's the world we live in. It's the reality that we experience. And so we need to live with Boy, I just got all kinds of songs coming to mind today, I guess. I want to be free. We, we just got to live with saying, hey, even this is for the Christian as well. Even if you were a believer, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. There's not ultimate fulfillment to the ear, to the eye, to the experiences in this life. There's constant motion, and the reality is the constant motion, there's no gain. It doesn't fill the sea. In 1974, Hoyt Axton released a country song. And this is a classic uh, country lyrics that really describe what Ecclesiastes is saying. This is what he wrote. See the rain coming down and the roof won't hold her. Lost my job and I feel a little older. Car won't run and our love's grown colder. But maybe things will get a little better in the morning. Maybe things will get a little better. Oh, the clothes need washing and the fire won't start. Kids all crying and you're breaking my heart. Whole darn place is falling apart. Maybe things will get a little better in the morning. Maybe things will get a little better. And then the refrain, work your fingers to the bone. And what do you get? Bony fingers. <laughs> work your fingers to the bone. And what do you get? bony fingers. He's saying the river flows every day and the, and the gulf looks to the sea is just the same. 
And he's saying, I'm working hard every day and there's no gain. I'm working my fingers to the bone and all I've got, you should Google and listen to the song if you never heard it, but uh, all I've got, it, not right now, is bony <laughs> fingers. You gain nothing working your fingers to the bone. We never really get ahead. We never really gain. We never really find ultimate satisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction. There is no ultimate fulfillment in life, he says. So the poem is stark. Folks, this is stark. The sun rises and sets, winds blow, streams flow, one generation passes after another. You live, you die, nobody ultimately remembers you, uh, what you've done, and in all, there is no ultimate fulfillment in the things of life. So how do we apply something like that? this? Well, I think we, we try to get at what is he trying to undermine? And I think he's trying to undermine Two human desires, two desires to escape our creatureliness, to get to escape the fact that he is God and we are creatures and we have limitations. He, there's two desires here that he's seeking to escape. One is to escape the repetitiveness of our lives. And yet, he makes the point, repetitive cycles are part of nature and they are part of human experience. And they only become, repetitive cycles only really become frustrated, frustrating when we're trying to view life as gain. If you're trying to find your meaning and to find your purpose and to find your joy in grasping after the things of life, if you're trying to find your meaning in grasping after your work, trying to find your purpose in your relationships, trying to find your joy in money, trying to find your meaning in achievement or success, then you will find yourself craving something new, never satisfied. The things of life never ultimately satisfy. We're always looking for something new to fill that. We're looking for, as I said, a new spouse, a new job, a new adventure, a new city. I mean, it came out this week. It's, it's like every week I read something. This week, Frisco, Texas, safest city in the U.S., okay? So people are coming here by the droves. And this may, this may map onto some of your experience right now. That if I can get to a new city where I can afford things, where it's the safest city, where the schools are great, what, well, all, the, all the stuff we got going for us, right? If I can just get there, then life will be good. But I wonder how many people are at year one or year two or year five at living in Frisco and found out, hmm. There's got to be something more because something new didn't change you. The old saying, wherever you go, there you are. It didn't change you. So there's ultimately no gain by moving to a city to fulfill your hopes. Ecclesiastes throughout the book is going to show us that life is gift not gain. That's what Ian Proven said. Life is gift, not gain. It's when you stop looking for the things of life to build your life and to find your meaning and to view life as a gift that, that things really change. So for instance, what if we began to realize the routines of life are God's design for us and he wants to meet us in those routines rather than chasing something new. So this means dishes and diapers, 
and paperwork and the repetitive meeting that you have to have over and over. These same old, same old things are from God in the world that we live. God has made routine. And the quicker we can say, God has given me this routine the quicker we will begin to find the meaning of our life. Ask God this question, how can I glorify you and love others through this routine, through this job, through my family, through this neighborhood? Maybe God has another job. Maybe he has another neighborhood for you in the future. I don't know. But the question is, what am I doing right here, right now? Am I longing for escape? Am I longing for the novel? Or am I looking to the sun in the morning, the sunrise, and say, that's me. I live on a rhythm as well. I'm a creature as well. And I find my joy in God, not in the urge to escape. Ask God to meet you in the regular and the mundane. Ask God to help you go deeper in the life you already have. Maybe you don't need a set of new relationships. Maybe God wants you to go deeper in the ones that you currently have. Maybe God doesn't want a new spouse. Maybe God's plan is to make you more like himself in the marriage that he has given you already. Ask God to help you uh, bear fruit in the job you have. To, to ask God to help you make the most of the job. Maybe it's very routine. Maybe it's very cyclical, but there's, there's something about your job that you can glorify the Lord in, and there's something about your job, unless it's illegal or something, there's something that you can act for the common good and be a blessing to others. So what is that? Resist the lies. I love what, uh, I, I, I love what Gibson says in this book. He says, what, what Ecclesiastes calls us to do is get real. That's what this poem is doing, get real. And he says, stop playing pretend. This is what he writes. The reality is we spend our lives trying to escape the constraints of created condition. We're not in control and we will not live forever. We will die, but we avoid this reality by playing let's pretend. Let's pretend that if we get the promotion or see our church grow, or bring up good children, we'll feel significant and leave a lasting legacy behind us. Let's pretend that if we change jobs or immigrate to the sun, we won't experience the humdrum tedium and ordinariness of life. Let's pretend that if we move to a new house, we'll be happier and we'll never want to move again. Let's pretend that if we end one relationship and start a new one, we won't ever feel trapped. Let's pretend that if we were married or weren't married, we'd be content. Let's pretend that if we had more money, we'd be satisfied. Let's pretend that if we get through this week's pile of washing and dirty diapers and shopping lists and school runs and busy evenings, next week we'll be quieter. Let's pretend that time is always on our side to do the things we want to do and become the people we want to be. Let's pretend we can break the cycle of repetition and finally arrive in a world free of weariness. We long for change in a world of permanent repetition and we dream of how to interrupt it. The seasons and natural cycles of the world are content to come and go but we sweat and toil to make believe that it will not be so with us. Stop thinking that meaning and happiness and satisfaction reside in novelty. That's a word to us.
that's a word. The second human desire the poem is seeking to undermine is the, the idea of permanence. We long for permanence. We try to stay young. We ignore death. We grow nostalgic as we grow older, missing the good old days. We fear we won't make a difference. We fear we won't ha- leave an impact. That usually hits around midlife, some, for some earlier. That hits around midlife. That's called a midlife crisis is what we call it. We won't be remembered. We haven't lived up to our potential. We, we must embrace the reality of the poem. And rather than grasp at building a legacy, we should celebrate our union with Jesus and seek to serve his legacy. We should be seeking to serve the legacy of Jesus. There is a lot of idolatry woven into my legacy. Doesn't mean we want to be faithful, but, but Jesus is the only one that has an eternal legacy. The book of Ecclesiastes will say in a few years, nobody's going to remember you. There's one legacy that's eternal. It's the legacy of the Lord Jesus Christ, who says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. So the question is, how can we invest in what the Lord is doing in our families and honor him? How can we invest in what the Lord is doing in our workplace or our neighborhood or our church? We're not called to build our own kingdom. We're called to seek his kingdom and his righteousness and all things will be added to us. Look for where he is at work around you and pray and love and serve with the goal of seeing him work in the lives of others. See, the goal of following Jesus is faithfulness. It's not name recognition for you and me. It's not permanence. It's not being remembered. The, the, The goal of serving Jesus is faithfulness, and then we leave the results to him. That's why at the end of the book it says, uh, fear God and keep his commandments. That's the whole thing. That's the whole thing. Ecclesiastes says, fear God, keep his commandments, leave the results to him. Let him build his legacy. Let him make his name great through you. May his word, his gospel, his work be known. The goal of our lives is not for my work to be known. The goal of our lives is for his work to be known through our lives. The Lord Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection. See, this poem leaves us longing and looking for something. And thankfully, this isn't the end of the Bible. The story goes on from here. And what we find, what Ecclesiastes does is lays our heart open and exposes our desires. This longing for permanence, this longing for novelty. And it points us further in the story where we find out there is one whose work is something new under the sun. There is someone whose work and death and resurrection really did usher in a new day. You see, there is one who did something categorically different. And and verse 11 says, while there may be no remembrance of former things for us, there is remembrance for the work of Jesus, whom we are to remember every day. The work of Jesus, whom we remember every time we gather, we remember it through word, through bread and wine, and through water, the sacraments. We remember what Jesus has done that has enduring effect. So many names have fallen aside. I mean, think of all the people in the world that have ever lived. You and I know almost none of them. Of the whole history of the world, we know almost no one who has ever lived personally. 
Very few in the history of the world. But there is one who lived and died and rose that we live for. The one who did something new under the sun, who ushered in a new covenant which gave us forgiveness, who gave us new life because of his death and resurrection. There is one who has made things new in our heart and will return and make all things new in heaven and earth. See, this poem... This poem leaves us longing. This poem lays us bare, but the story of God points to the fulfillment, the one who answers the longings here so that we don't have to have someone novel, something novel always happening because we know God whose mercies are new every morning. That is what the Lord has provided for us. Stop grasping to find gain in stuff and things and achievements and look to the Lord and say, how can I be faithful in my work, in my relationships? Life is gift, not gain. Help me use all of this for your glory, for you are the one who makes all things new. And then our routines begin to have purpose. Then our routines begin to be a way to serve the Lord. And the reality is when you meet Jesus, you are granted permanence. Everybody's not singing your praises 100, 200 years from now. They're singing his. But you're granted eternal life. So we have someone new who's done something new to change everything, Jesus. We have the promise of eternity. And that is in Jesus. So ultimately, the longings of something new and the longings for permanence are all found in Jesus Christ. And that's where we find meaning in our lives. I'm going to ask the band to come because just as the sun rises and sets and just as nature has cycles and repetition built in it, so the people of God are called to cycles and repetition. We're called to gather weekly to hear the word and to receive the Lord's Supper, and that's what we're going to do. Communion is actually a routine under the sun, and we're not looking for something new to replace it. We're celebrating it because it represents Jesus' death for us. It's a life-giving routine that may not be routine in the empty sense, but it's a life-giving action that is repeated on a regular basis that reminds us that life is gift, not gain, and that there's coming a day when weariness will be no more. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.